This month is a continuation of last month's ghost stories. Late November ghost stories here on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. This episode is brought to you by The Shrink Next Door on Apple TV, a 2021 drama inspired by the true story of Marty and the therapist who turned his life around, then took it over. When he first meets Dr. Ike, Marty just wants to get better at boundaries. Over 30 years, he'll learn all about them and what happens when they get crossed. Check out The Shrink Next Door, only on Apple TV. Check us out on Facebook.com and check the show notes for the sponsors who help keep us on air and find out how you can help. And also check out Taza Chocolates Holiday Stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. Hey, guess what? Here's the show. Here we go. Recording by Louise J. Bell. The Diary of a Madman by Guy de Maupassant. He was dead. The head of a high tribunal. The upright magistrate, whose irreproachable life was a proverb in all the courts of France. Advocates, young counselors, judges had saluted, bowing low in token of profound respect, remembering that grand face, pale and thin, illumined by two bright, deep-set eyes. He had passed his life in pursuing crime and in protecting the weak. Swindlers and murderers had no more redoubtable enemy, for he seemed to read in the recesses of their soul their most secret thoughts. He was dead now, at the age of eighty-two, honored by the homage and followed by the regrets of a whole people. Soldiers in red breeches had escorted him to the tomb, and men in white cravats had shed on his grave tears that seemed to be real. But listen to the strange paper found by the dismayed notary in the desk where the judge had kept filed the records of great criminals. It was entitled, Why? June 20th, 1851. I have just left court. I have condemned Blondel to death. Now, why did this man kill his five children? Frequently, one meets with people to whom killing is a pleasure. Yes, yes, it should be a pleasure. The greatest of all, perhaps. For is not killing most like creating? To make and to destroy. These two words contain the history of the universe the history of all worlds, all that is, all. Why is it not intoxicating to kill? 
June 25th. To think that there is a being who lives, who walks, who runs. A being? What is a being? An animated thing which bears in it the principle of motion and a will ruling that principle. It clings to nothing, this thing. Its feet are independent of the ground. It is a grain of life that moves on the earth. And this grain of life, coming I know not whence, one can destroy at one's will. Then nothing, nothing more. It perishes. It is finished. June 26th. Why, then, is it a crime to kill? Yes, why? On the contrary, it is the law of nature. Every being has the mission to kill. He kills to live, and he lives to kill. The beast kills without ceasing, all day, every instant of its existence. Man kills without ceasing to nourish himself. But since, in addition, he needs to kill for pleasure, he has invented the chase. The child kills the insects he finds, the little birds, all the little animals that come in his way. But this does not suffice for the irresistible need of massacre that is in us. It is not enough to kill beasts. We must kill man, too. Long ago this need was satisfied by human sacrifice. Now, the necessity of living in society has made murder a crime. We condemn and punish the assassin. But, as we cannot live without yielding to this natural and imperious instinct of death, we relieve ourselves from time to time by wars. Then, a whole nation slaughters another nation. It is a feast of blood, a feast that maddens armies and intoxicates the civilians, women and children who read by lamplight at night the feverish story of massacre. And do we despise those picked out to accomplish these butcheries of men? No, they are loaded with honors. They are clad in gold and in resplendent stuffs. They wear plumes on their heads and ornaments on their breasts. And they are given crosses, rewards, titles of every kind. They are proud, respected, loved by women, 
cheered by the crowd, solely because their mission is to shed human blood. They drag through the streets their instruments of death, and the passerby, clad in black, looks on with envy. For to kill is the great law put by nature in the heart of existence. There is nothing more beautiful and honorable than killing. June 30th. To kill is the law because nature loves eternal youth. She seems to cry in all her unconscious acts, quick, quick, quick. The more she destroys, the more she renews herself. July 2nd. It must be a pleasure, unique and full of zest, to kill, to place before you a living, thinking being, to make therein a little hole, nothing but a little hole, and to see that red liquid flow which is the blood, which is the life, and then to have before you only a heap of limp flesh, cold, inert, void of thought. August 5th. I, who have passed my life in judging, condemning, killing by words pronounced, killing by the guillotine those who had killed by the knife, if I should do as all the assassins whom I have smitten have done, I, I, who would know it? August 10th, who would ever know? Who would ever suspect me? Especially if I should choose a being I had no interest in doing away with. August 22nd. I could resist no longer. I have killed a little creature as an experiment, as a beginning. Jean, my servant, had a goldfinch in a cage hung in the office window. I sent him on an errand, and I took the little bird in my hand, in my hand where I felt its heart beat. It was warm. I went up to my room. From time to time, I squeezed it tighter. Its heart beat faster. It was atrocious and delicious. I was nearly choking it, but I could not see the blood. Then I took scissors, short nail scissors,
and I cut its throat in three strokes, quite gently. It opened its bill. It struggled to escape me. But I held it. Oh, I held it. I could have held a mad dog. And I saw the blood trickle. And then I did as assassins do. Real ones. I washed the scissors and washed my hands. I sprinkled water and took the body, the corpse, to the garden to hide it. I buried it under a strawberry plant. It will never be found. Every day I can eat a strawberry from that plant. How one can enjoy life when one knows how. My servant cried. He thought his bird flown. How could he suspect me? Ah. August 25th. I must kill a man. I must. August 30th. It is done. But what a little thing. I had gone for a walk in the forest of Verne. I was thinking of nothing, literally nothing. See, a child on the road. A little child eating a slice of bread and butter. He stops to see me pass and says, Good day, Mr. President. And the thought enters my head. Shall I kill him? I answer, You are alone, my boy? Yes, sir. All alone in the wood? Yes, sir. The wish to kill him intoxicated me like wine. I approached him quite softly, persuaded that he was going to run away. And suddenly, I seized him by the throat. He held my wrists in his little hands, and his body writhed like a feather on the fire. Then, he moved no more. I threw the body in the ditch, then some weeds on top of it. I returned home and dined well. What a little thing it was. In the evening I was very gay, light, rejuvenated and passed the evening at the prefects. They found me witty. But I have not seen blood. I am not tranquil.
August 31st. The body has been discovered. They are hunting for the assassin. Ah. September 1st. Two tramps have been arrested. Proofs are lacking. September 2nd. The parents have been to see me. They wept. Ah. October 6th. Nothing has been discovered. Some strolling vagabond must have done the deed. Ah, if I had seen the blood flow, it seems to me I should be tranquil now. October 10th. Yet another. I was walking by the river after breakfast, and I saw, under a willow, a fisherman asleep. It was noon. A spade, as if expressly put there for me, was standing in a potato field nearby. I took it. I returned. I raised it like a club. And with one blow of the edge, I cleft the fisherman's head. Oh, he bled, this one. Rose-colored blood. It flowed into the water quite gently. And I went away with a grave step. If I had been seen... Ah, I should have made an excellent assassin. October 25th. The affair of the fisherman makes a great noise. His nephew, who fished with him, is charged with the murder. October 26th. The examining magistrate affirms that the nephew is guilty. Everybody in town believes it. Ah. Ah. October 27th. The nephew defends himself badly. He had gone to the village to buy bread and cheese, he declares. He swears that his uncle had been killed in his absence. Who would believe him? October 28th. The nephew has all but confessed. So much have they made him lose his head. Ah, justice. November 15th. There are overwhelming proofs against the nephew, who was his uncle's heir. I shall preside at the sessions. January 25th, 1852 To death, to death, to 
death. I have had him condemned to death. The Advocate General spoke like an angel. Ah, yet another. I shall go to see him executed. March 10th. It is done. They guillotined him this morning. He died very well, very well. That gave me pleasure. How fine it is to see a man's head cut off. Now I shall wait. I can wait. It would take such a little thing to let myself be caught. The manuscript contained more pages, but told of no new crime. Alienist physicians, to whom the awful story has been submitted, declare that there are in the world many unknown madmen, as adroit and as terrible as this monstrous lunatic. End of The Diary of a Madman Recording by Louise J. Bell Sebastopol, California Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that will tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Read by Dale Grothman. An Eye for an Eye by William A. McGarry An almost imperceptible zephyr from the elm-shaded avenue added through the raised windows of Clayton's beautiful mansion, swaying the silken curtains ever so slightly. A little cloud of pungent powder smoke lazily rose, disintegrated, and was carried away. Clayton, in evening dress, stood stupidly over the prone bodies of Marsden, his lifelong chum, and she who had been his wife. The revolver, given him by the dead man on their first trip after big game, was in his hand. It was an automatic, needing but the slightest pressure to let loose its messengers of death. A pool of blood from the breast of the woman stained the carpet a darker hue. She lay as she had fallen, save her right arm, which, thrown up in protection, had limply relaxed and settled to her side. 
Her heaving breast had grown still, and no sound but the breathing of Clayton broke the intense stillness. Marsden, his features distorted in the death grin of fear, had not moved. His body lay crumpled as though every bone were broken. A bell clanged somewhere in the house, but Clayton took no heed. It was followed by a crash, and a squad of bluecoats led by the precinct captain entered, with drawn revolvers. The automatic was taken from Clayton's unresisting hand, and he was manacled. No questions were asked. They were unnecessary. Time passed unnoticed, and Clayton sat mute and unseeing behind the narrow bars. He slept and ate mechanically. The protestations of friendship and offers of help, which had plenteously at first reached his cell, passed without answer, and now he was left severely alone. Only once did he speak, just before the jury went out. The unwritten law was his defense. He said but little, a word picture of his life as it had been before his one-time friend stepped in, a sketch of his ideals, the feelings that came to him when he saw his home had been destroyed. That was all. Then again he sank into the chair, silent, morose. Presently, a stir followed by a death-like hush masked the return of the jury. A deep voice sounded unnecessarily loud in the stifling stillness of the courtroom. Not guilty, it said. As one in a dream, Clayton walked from the place. He submitted passively to congratulations. Dully, without thought, he answered business questions from his lawyer whose face bore a look of conscious pride at the victory. A taxicab, called by a friend, stopped at the curb to receive him. He was sharply reminded that he had not paid the fare as he left the vehicle before the door of his home. Home. The unspoken word jarred his nerves. Things were sadly out of place. Why did this picture persist in staring at him? Why this old Japanese chair, his last birthday gift to her, always bar his way? All the house seemed wrapped in an atmosphere of gloom and despair. Voices called from corners, behind chairs, and the suddenly lighted electrics revealed no one. Petulantly, he invaded the upper regions of the house. A drawer in his small bureau slid open, creaking, to his pull. A blue, burnished automatic, mate to that other, sparkled before his eyes. Unthinkingly, his fingers closed over it. As in a dream, he wandered back to that room he had left months ago, manacled, accused. He gazed unseeing into the chilly blue barrel of the weapon in his hand. His eyes strayed around, then fell on the dark stain on the rug. He forced himself to look away. Then he found the stain again before his eyes. It seemed to mock him, and once he thought he heard a chuckle. His blood froze in his veins as it dissolved, took shape, 
and showed her face. For many minutes he gazed into her eyes. They were sad and reproachful. Perhaps, after all, he had been wrong, hasty. He could see her as she looked that first day they met, then as she looked on their wedding day. And he had killed her, perhaps without cause. He forgot that the jury of his peers had acquitted him. Forgot everything except that the fear of death to which he had sent her was on him. Summoning all his will, he tore his gaze away from the dark, ominous stain. Again, his eyes fastened on the blued muzzle of the revolver. Nervously toying with the safety catch, his fingers unloosed it. The whir of an automobile passing on the avenue grew less distinguishable. Then it took strength and swelled into an eerie moan of anguish. It sounded to him like an accusation. Again he called on his will, and unconsciously his muscles tightened, answering the leaping surge of his heart. The double grip of the automatic released a spring hidden in its perfect steel heart. As quick as thought itself, the mechanism obeyed its law. An empty shell flew out with a snap, and there was a dull thud, then silence. Outside, a blue coat, idly swinging his club and ruminating on the law which allowed a rich man to go free, suddenly stiffened as the hound at bay. All sign of laziness left him, and he bounded up the steps of the mansion, two at a time. A whistle sounded. For the second time, the massive front door was forced open. For the second time, a squad of police entered the gorgeously furnished parlor of Clayton's home. An odor of powder smoke met them, strong and pungent. A rapidly enlarging pool of blood was darkening the outlines of the already dark, ugly stain on the rug. Open-mouthed, the blue coat stood, tense and silent. A rattling of curtain rings boomed, almost deafening in their ears. Silently, the captain, he who had led that other squad, turned and gestured, and the men filed out, leaving one on guard. Again, all was silent, save for the whispering breeze, fanning the smoke and rustling the silken curtains. The End of An Eye for an Eye by William A. McGarry t-shirts in the show. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers.